You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house for a new week, although it is it is already Tuesday afternoon, but you know, coming back after a holiday weekend, I feel like I am totally still asleep at the switch. Um, so anyway, bear with us today because I am really tired. I don't know what it is when you're in a war footing, always fighting for liberty, and then you take a couple days off, spend some family time, do some yard work, and then I just come back and I'm so tired. I can barely process information. And by the way, it's a good thing that Congress is out all week. You know, um, we come back on Tuesday. Congress comes back next Tuesday. Um, you know, I'd make fun out of it, but the reality is it's good they're not back because, frankly, they're not going to do anything to address the emergency issues. In fact, when they address the emergency issues, as you guys well know, they address them from the other side of the fence. So they'll take a pressing issue. The single worst issue, as we've talked about, the amalgamation of the border crisis, the Dreamer UAC magnet, unaccompanied alien child magnet, criminal justice reform, the jailbreak, being weak on crime, national security, Hezbollah, drug cartels. It all ties together. I encourage you to look at or listen to our podcast from two weeks ago, a winning safety and security agenda for the election. And I tie all these issues together. And it's not that Congress is ignoring these issues. Oh, they're all addressing them all right. They're addressing them from the other side. They're saying we need more dream amnesty. We're being too mean to the UAC MS-13 magnet. We're being too strong on crime. We're being too strong on drug traffickers while they complain about an opioid crisis. There's a lot more on that, by the way, too. But I want to start off with criminal justice deform. Look, if you guys are sick of this from me already, then I got news for you. I'm going to keep dogging this issue because I'm the only one focusing on it. So I got word back that Jared's folks are pretty upset with me. Um, you know, you'd think they'd be pretty happy that there's only one guy putting out content against their bill and their broader effort. But I guess they want every last person on board. I guess what we're doing is pretty effective, speaking the truth. So we're going to continue speaking the truth on the crime issue. You know, one of the things you have to realize when it comes to politics is you always need to understand the policies. And in order to understand the politics, you you need that – can't talk today. You need to understand the politics as well in order to understand the policies. You can't look in a vacuum at a piece of legislation. You have to analyze what's in it, but you also have to look at the context, where it's coming from, where it's headed, who's behind it, what their agenda is. And one of the things they do when it comes to weak on crime laws as well as the border and amnesty agenda is 
broadly, their agenda, they're very open about this. It's a very sweeping agenda. But then in order to get conservatives on board, because of course conservatives always wind up getting on board with a counterintuitive agenda, something that's counter to what their <clears throat> stated goals are, they make it very narrow. No, 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 Daniel, you don't understand. This is very limited, very limited amnesty. You got to do this and you got to jump through these holes and it's only people that are curing cancer and valedictorians and fighting in the military. Same thing with crime. Broadly speaking, not just the Soros groups, but even the Koch-funded groups, the libertarian groups, and frankly, Heritage Foundation, all these groups, they say, too many people in prison. They fundamentally have adopted the philosophy behind the Michael Dukakis wing of the Democrat Party as it relates to crime, that there's too many people in prison, that prison is bad, that we need to focus on rehabilitation rather than punishment and deterrent. Okay, fundamentally uprooting Reagan's legacy, which was one of the forgotten legacies we're going to talk about of Ronald Reagan on crime. But then they know it's not going to resonate with most people. So they say, no, 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 no. What are you talking about? Daniel, stop putting words in our mouth. This is not jailbreak. This is not sentencing bill. This is just prison reform. This is just very narrow. So that, that's what their criticism is of my critique of the bill. Daniel, this is prison reform. It's recidiv- anti-recidivism programs. <laughs> I love how they you know, put all this stuff in their bill that you know, it's never been proven to work. But anyway, you know, they say, Daniel, this is not cutting sentences. This is just prison reform. So that, that, that's one pushback against my work. Now, before we get to the details, I just want to note what's interesting is in order to defend the bill at hand – they throw overboard their broader agenda. Oh, so does that mean you're against sentencing reduction? That's news to me because the second bill you have coming is the Lee Durbin sentencing bill to totally take a meat cleaver to mandatory sentencing for drug traffickers, um, violent criminals that, ha- that were convicted of gun felonies, all sitting in fe- federal prison. So that's interesting. All these people telling me, Daniel, this is not a sentencing bill. Well, I never saw them joining with me to fight the sentencing bill, which, by the way, did pass the Senate Judiciary Bill, which, by the way, Chuck Grassley wants to add to this First Step Act. And that's the point. This bill that passed the House is now in the Senate. It's aptly referred to as the First Step Act because this is the first step in adopting the Soros-Dukakis crime mentality – deracinating Ronald Reagan's entire tough-on-crime approach. But what they do is they come in with their first thing. So they have – their entire movement is sitting behind behind the bushes, and they have the first trial balloon. They're like, Daniel, shut up. What are you talking about? This is all it is. Oh, really? Okay. So could we shake on it? You know, I've said before, if all we come out from this whole thing is the First Step Act and Jeff Sessions will forever be attorney general, it wouldn't be that bad. But Jeff Sessions will not be attorney general forever, and this is not the only bill. Now, I never called this bill a sentencing bill. I called it a jailbreak bill, and I specifically addressed the fact that it doesn't, from the front end of the system, cut sentences, but from the back end has multiple early release credit programs that, when taken together with the existing programs, allow 10-year – someone sentenced to a 10-year prison sentence – 
to get out within about five years, some cases five years and seven months, those sentenced to five years would get out in a little bit more than two years. No, but they have to jump through a bunch of holes. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, maybe Jeff Sessions will hold them to it, uh, but any Democrat and any Republican who's not named Jeff Sessions, which is pretty much everyone um, realistically who would get the AG slot in the future, they'd be these right on crime, or I call them wrong on crime, Coke initiative type of people. Believe me, they'll do everything they can to release these people. So this is this is the shtick. It's the same thing. What are you talking about? This is not amnesty. So off the cameras and even on the cameras, they'll they'll basically say deportations are immoral. Okay, deportations are immoral. We're seeing that now. Even criminal aliens, you cannot deport anymore. But when they come to the specific legislation, they have a different PR team to try to get conservatives on board and say, no, no, this is, this is going to empower deportations. We're gonna, this is going to make us more safe, safer. We're, we're in good shape here. This is just a very limited bill. Same thing here. All this is very limited, and it's not. But the funny thing is, so they're admitting that, that we're right on sentencing. So then why are you still pushing that? So we have an article out detailing how a day after the Department of Justice, the day after they passed this bill last Tuesday, on Wednesday, DOJ came out with a study from the Bureau of Justice Statistics under the DOJ that 83% of all people that were released under these state jailbreak programs, which by the way have been going on for 15 years, the trend is de-incarceration. It's a delayed reaction that they're complaining about too many people in prison. That's a BS issue. It's built on an erroneous data, erroneous premise, demonstrably false. We don't have peak incarceration. We're way down. Per capita, the incarceration rates are back at 1996 levels. But anyway, they studied a pool of 400,000 people, 67,000 specific out of that pool of 400,000. That's a pretty big sample size. Nobody else has done this. Nobody else has the resources like the Bureau of Justice Statistics. The most comprehensive study. What did they find? They found that overall, 68% of those released from state prisoners were arrested within just three years. 79% within six and 83% within nine years. It's an old study I've cited before, but they updated it because they only did – it takes a long time to do this. You have to observe them over nine years. They observed them over five years as of 2015. Now they released the updated survey to cover nine years. Okay, On an annual basis, 44% of prisoners were arrested just during the first year alone. The point is that the people in prison are the ones that are the most problematic. And that's why we actualized such a drop in crime since the Reagan era because of all these sentencing laws, because of the tougher policing, because of the stricter you know, criminal proceedings. Why? Because it's 10% of the people doing 90% of the crime. That's not a stat, by the way. I'm just you know, saying that rhetorically. Um, it's a small amount doing most of the crime, but you let them out early, well, you're going to have to deal with them earlier, and you're going to have to deal with more of these people, and it, and it compounds itself. So at least let them serve out their sentencing. This is the problem. Now they say, Daniel, that's the point. Recidivism. 
That's why we need anti-recidivism programs. Okay, so have your training training programs without letting them out early. <laughs> but that's the lie. This bill lets them out early. That's the big lie. It's not just like some sort of job, job training, faith-based program. Okay, fine, so attend it. No, but they get out early. <clears throat> now, here's the kicker. More than three-quarters, 77% of those released for you know drug offenders were arrested for non-drug crimes within nine years. <laughs> and more than 34% were arrested for a violent crime. So first of all, drug crimes are not smoking marijuana. You should know that by now. You're not sitting in state prison for smoking marijuana, much less federal prison. These are hardcore drug traffickers, heroin, fentanyl traffickers that are responsible for the death of thousands of people. But aside from that, the point is – and, and you know, I just, I'm going to read you one, one of Reagan's uh, radio addresses when he was president. But Reagan talked about this all the time, that the drug traffickers are the guys doing most of the violent crime. You let them go, they're going to – you know, even if you're not such a hawk on drug crimes, but these are the ones responsible for committing many, many other crimes. So, so th- this is what was so successful about the Armed Career C- Criminal Act, the drug sentencing acts of the, of the Reagan era. It ensured that these people were locked up. And that's how crime dropped. We're letting these people out. And, and that's another thing. The entire notion of applying jailbreak to the federal system is, is insane. First of all, there's only 180,000 people, and that, that's not a lot for a country this size. That's just 13% of the prison population. Again, only 13% of the prison population is in the federal system. Let me give you some stats that's going to shock you. 32% of them are criminal aliens. Why do you think they're in the federal system? Because it's immigration related. 44% of all federal convictions from 2001 to 2016 were immigration charges. Okay, so you want to talk about money and cost of incarceration on a federal level. Stop clogging up with, with criminal aliens. But that's the problem. The same organizations pushing weak on crime laws are the same ones that are weak on the border. You implement my... Border policies, my interior enforcement policies, deport all criminal aliens, you know, except for El Chapo, the ones that were worried about national security concerns if we send them back to Mexico. But most of them just I'm, – I'm okay with letting them go, deporting them. You want to save space? You want to save money in prison? That's how you do it. Then come back to me and talk about too many people being in federal prison. And then the remaining – the remainder of these people, they're violent Hardened drug traffickers, gun felons, and other things. You want to talk about white-collar crimes? Maybe shouldn't be federalized some of them? Maybe make them state crimes? Fine, but these bills don't do that. They don't discriminate. You know, so one of the things they say, Daniel's making it up. It has so many exceptions to the leniencies in this bill. And if you look at the exceptions, they're ridiculous. Someone convicted of torture, um, assassinating, t- attempted assassination of a Supreme Court justice, biological warfare. So it, it's several pages worth of exceptions, and they wrote it that way on purpose to have a talking point. It's amazing. So they could have this talking point. But if you look, it doesn't cover almost all the people that are actually in prison or what they're actually convicted for. So this whole thing is built on a lie. And again, this comes at a time when we already have a culture of leniency. 
We're already letting them go. The U.S. Sentencing Commission has spent a decade letting people go. Obama let another 2,000 go. There's no more juice to squeeze out of that peach. We've already let go of the so-called, you know, anyone who's called nonviolent. It's amazing. In fiscal year 2015, 62.4% of all drug traffickers sentenced received a sentence below what is recommended by sentencing guidelines. In in FY 2016, only 44.5% of all drug offenders were convicted of an offense carrying a mandatory minimum, the lowest proportion since 1993. We're not doing this anymore, for better or for worse. I would argue for worse, but they succeeded already. These leniencies are baked in. We have all the safety valves. There's all sorts of ways to get around this stuff on the front end, on the back end, early release programs, avoiding the mandatory sentencing up front. This bill is a BS issue. The notion that we need to be making it more lenient is absurd, especially with crime going up. And that's the thing. Interestingly enough, you know, you look at the statistics from the FBI. And it's very clear that over the last two years – now, 2017, we don't really have the full data. There is evidence thanks to the Trump effect. Things might have, um, things might have gone down. <clears throat> but you know, still, that's, it's not uniform. In many places, crime is going up. And that's very concerning after you know, 23 years of consecutive drops in crime. But you know, after plummeting for 23 years, violent crime rose in 2015 and 2016. It rose by 4.1 percent um, in 2016, and the murder rate spiked by 8.6 percent, the greatest single-year increase in 25 years. So now is not the time to be doing jailbreak. Last decade, we're like, man, maybe we're getting too tough. Maybe the pendulum has swung too much in the you know incarceration direction. So they changed this stuff. Now the pendulum has swung back the other way, and incidentally, crime's going up. It skyrocketed by over 20% in cities over 1 million that have over 1 million people. You know, so what's interesting is you have all these organizations on the pseudo right that are pushing this phony racial agenda. See, Trump is good for the blacks. See, he exposed the Democrat hypocrisy on prison reform. He's better than they are. So what's funny about being conservative these days is conservatives have no um, – <clears throat> they have no views of their own anymore. It's all – they want a rhetorical talking point of like, oh, we're better for Democrat ide- ideology than the Democrats are. Not as a rhetorical tool, as a means to push conservative policy, but to have that talking point as an end. So I'm seeing, you know, all sorts of people, Diamond and Silk, you know, the noted uh, intellectual uh, powerhouses of our time, uh, promoting this talking point. Now they never followed this issue. They never followed the bill until Trump tweeted it out. So then they knew it existed. Um, yeah, this whole article out there. See, Trump exposed their hypocrisy. Now. It's built on a premise that Democrats were opposing this. A tiny percentage of Democrats oppose this for kind of in the weeds reasons. But they were they they knew it would pass anyway, so they figured they'd lodge their protest vote. But anyway, really? So this is what we're about. So Trump so Trump signs on to jailbreak, and we're like, oh, you see, he's better for blacks than you are. 
So let's say Republicans sign on to a, a 10% across-the-board tax increase. Are we then going to write articles saying, you see, Republicans are better for the poor than the Democrats? Oh, so now we adopted their ideology. Is that, is that what winning looks like? The reality is I got news for you. When you let people out of jail, you know who it hurts the most? It hurts blacks the most. In 2014, 698 more blacks were killed than whites in this country. 2015, 1,805 more blacks were killed than whites. Now, that's an astounding statistic. Furthermore, in 2016, 1,305 more blacks were killed than whites. Notice a pattern the last couple years between the war on police, the jailbreak, the weakening of sentencing, the weakening of everything in the criminal justice system. Now remember, blacks comprise just 13% of the population, yet in absolute numbers, not just as a share of their population, absolute numbers, there were 1,300 more blacks killed than whites in 2016. I mean, that's astounding. But you don't hear about this. Now, most of this, as you well know, it's black-on-black crime. There were almost 1,100 more black murder offenders than whites. It's a similar thing. They, they comprise only 13% of the population, but overwhelmingly, um, you know, they're 60% or so of the victims and of the perpetrators. We could shut down every police department in America. We could let everyone they want to be let out of jail and you know, say, hey, here, here you go. And I'm telling you, the people it will hurt the most are blacks. You know, I talk a lot about my neighborhood here outside of Baltimore since the war on cops, the Freddie Gray effect the last couple of years, all the jailbreak, break, jailbreak bills passed by the state legislature. And, you know, again, culminating with the very, very tragic murder of a police officer by one of these juveniles that was in the juvenile system, was not incarcerated, had five felonies in six months. Escaped from home confinement, which, by the way, home confinement is a big part of this First Step Act. And what's interesting is while we have the carjackings and the burglaries in the suburban areas, still for the most part we haven't had murders. You know where the murders are? They're all downtown, and they're almost all blacks. You know, last year – or whatever, I guess this is now two years ago, the last time we had data, 2016, there were 7,881 black homicide victims in this country. And again, the overwhelming majority of them were killed by blacks. So, you know, when they, when they talk about we have an incarceration problem, I got news for you. We have an under-incarceration problem in this country. Because even if I were to agree with everyone they at least publicly want to let out, now privately they want to just do away with tons of incarceration. But you know they, they don't say it publicly. Publicly, all the ones they want to let out, if I let out every so-called nonviolent whatever that they talk about, it's, it's a drop in the bucket, especially in the federal system. But for every one of those, I can find you 10 that aren't in prison. And I'm, I'm not even getting to burglaries. I'm talking about murder and rape. Most metropolitan areas, only there's only a 30% conviction rate for murderers. 
A lot of them they don't catch. Even if they catch them, they can't land a conviction. You know, that that's the problem here. <clears throat> we have an under-incarceration problem among everyone, particularly among blacks. <clears throat> and that hurts blacks, hurts other blacks. This is the unvarnished truth that no one's going to talk about. You know, l- let me read to you from Ronald Reagan. This is February 18th, 1984. This was his uh, radio address. Shouldn't we have the right as citizens of this great country to walk our streets without being afraid and to go to bed without worrying the next sound might be a burglar or a rapist? Of course we should. But in reality, we don't. The sad fact is too many of our friends and loved ones live in fear of crime, and there's no mystery as to why. For too many years, the scales of criminal justice were tilted toward protecting rights of criminals. Those in charge forgot or just plain didn't care about protecting your rights, the rights of law-abiding citizens. We came to Washington determined to change that by restoring the proper balance to our criminal justice system by assisting all of you who through neighborhood watch type programs are trying to protect life, property, and security in your communities. Common sense is beginning to pay off. In 1982, the crime rate dropped by 4.3%, the biggest decline since 1972, but we still face a tremendous challenge. Since drugs are related to an enormous amount of violent crime, drug trafficking and organized crime are among our major, major targets. And he, you know, he goes on to talk about FBI initiatives, his legislation, um, his Comprehensive Crime Control Act. Some of it became law eventually, but he was complaining about um, all sorts of things. Oh, another reform. Let me just read. I'm, I'm just skimming his speech, and I'll link to this in show notes. Another reform involving the so-called exclusionary rule. See, there's the police tactics, there's the sentencing, but there's also a whole other thing. The criminal justice proceedings would allow evidence obtained reasonably in good faith to be used in criminal trial. I got news for you folks. The courts are completely taking a meat cleaver to all this. They're creating all sorts of rights. All, I mean, at a time when the courts are creating all sorts of rights, downright striking down criminal statutes – on a state and federal level, tainting all sorts of evidence to ensure, to ensure that people go free. What are we doing? Now is not the time to go weaker. We need stricter laws, just like Reagan's time. You know, 90s and early 2000s were good. We're going back the other way. Now is time to go back to the 80s mentality. And, you know... Again, I'll, I'll link to this. I don't want to you know, read it all on air here and chew up time here when I know you guys could read this. But these reforms make good sense, said Reagan, and there's no excuse for not passing them. The liberal approach of coddling criminals didn't work and never will. Nothing in our Constitution gives dangerous criminals a right to prey on innocent law-abiding people. There you go. But I'm the last man standing here. And you know what's funny? It's all groupthink. The American Conservative Union, which hosts um, – they host CPAC every year. For years, they were tough on immigration and tough on crime. And indeed, they actually scored in their legislative scorecard the Bail Reform Act of Reagan, a lot of these bills that Reagan pushed. When the Koch brothers and you know all these groups launched the silent coup when none of us were paying attention and started promoting jailbreak across the country over the last decade – 
the American Conservative Union signed on to the jailbreak movement. But you know what's funny? At the same time they signed on to jailbreak, they signed on to the amnesty movement. Again, the two go very closely together. And what did they do? They supported the Gang of Eight bill. But then Trump became president, and he became popular. You know, you can't be caught on the right not supporting the president. So suddenly they flip back. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. I was on air um, one time with Lou Dobbs, and he had Mercedes Schlapp on, who now works in the White House. She's the wife of Matt Schlapp, who heads the American Conservative Union. And we were talking about Trump and immigration, and she was on my side. And I was laughing to myself because in any other era, she would have been on the other side. But she changed her views in order to comport with what's going on. Sadly and tragically and ironically, Trump is just as tough on crime, and the two go together. But he hasn't been as emphatic about it. It's a little bit more subtle. He hasn't been on top of it, and now he's downright been convinced to support this garbage bill. So – the groups like American Conservative Union haven't moved back, but I guarantee you if Trump were ever to emphatically speak the way he is on immigration uh, to, to do, do so on crime and we reach a critical saturation level on that issue, I guarantee you these groups will go back. They're rear ends. They have no mind of their own. They can't think out of whatever's put, put on their plate by the left and these you know donors in Washington. They cannot think for themselves. It's truly pathetic. All of a sudden, they, they act all, you know, all they're self-righteous on this issue. Follow the money. You know, at least if you're going to be like that, be consistent and continue being open borders. Whoops, you're scared because of the president. So that's where we're at now. We're, we're all the party of Michael Dukakis now. It's all the party of Dukakis. Just very sad. You know, and again, the population, the prison population is plummeting, has plummeted the last few years. And 34% of that has been in the federal system, even though the federal system only accounts for 13% of the prisoners. So we've had as much jailbreak as you could have. If you have a bill to let out thousands early, which is most of them, the, the, again, the exceptions apply to very few people. What do you think is going to happen? Well, we know what happens. They wind up getting rearrested. Now, there's another interesting thing here. So they all say, Daniel, don't focus on Maryland and California and the experiences there. Focus on the Texas model. These anti-recidivism programs are modeled after what Greg Abbott and you know, Rick Perry supported and our you know buddies right on crime, wrong on crime, Texas Public Policy Foundation institution. And by the way, just to, to digress here a bit, you know, I uh, did a whole show on this last week, noting how isn't it interesting how we have the stinger of the libertarians, but not the honey. So we're getting all their anti-civilization stuff, but could we at least get the fiscal conservatism? No. Texas Public Policy Foundation has signed on to the stupid Rick Santorum approach to health care. Uh, several friends of mine have resigned because of that. So, you know, when it comes to fiscal issues, it's not like they're, they're, they're with us. They're not. We're only suffering the, liability, the liabilities of where they're not with us. But anyway, very important thing here. 
wanted to read to you. So they say we want to we're following in the Texas model. You know, who doesn't like Texas? Now, here, here here's the thing. The recidivism rate on a federal level is much lower. It's 34%. And for good reasons because for the most part the federal system has had tougher sentencing and the states have been letting people go. So you see it, it's actually it's actually a proof to our way of thinking not their way of thinking. You know, why would you why would you take state programs and apply them on a federal level if you have a if you have a lower recidivism rate on a federal level? It makes no sense and I write about that today. But anyway, they talk about Texas. So their whole thing is they say, "All right, fine. You want to say on a on a federal level, we see the recidivism rate within 5 years in the 40s, 60s on the state level, but only 34% on a federal level, but if you break it down to Texas, that rate is only 22%." That's the talking point you'll hear. Look at Texas's successful model. There's one problem. Our buddies at the National Association of Assistant U.S. Attorneys, good group of people. And by the way, there's a number of law enforcement groups that are opposing this, but you don't hear from them. You know, whenever you have law enforcement groups promoting gun control, you always hear from them. But when they oppose kind of weak sentencing or weak criminal justice laws, you don't hear from them. The, the media, the political system won't promote them. But they sent a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee, to the White House, and he, here's their point. There, there are distinctive differences between the Texas prison system and the federal system that work against direct comparisons between them. To begin with, the large number of juveniles in the Texas system compared to the minuscule number in the federal system skews any comparison because it dramatically impacts the aggregate recidivism rate in Texas. Okay. I, I, I want to get to the next thing. More significantly, while the federal system considers only rearrests for measuring recidivism, which may or may not necessarily result in re- reincarceration, Texas recognizes a wider number of outcomes, thereby driving down the recidivism rate. However, when you compare apples to apples, rearrest to rearrest, the comparison becomes more accurate and clearly definitive. The rearrest recidivism rate in Texas actually becomes 46.5%. That is 12.5% worse than the federal recidivism rate of 34%. Thus, why would federal authorities want to consider a program that does not perform nearly as well as the current one? And it's very important there because I want to make a broader point more outside of the weeds with just some, some sort of data point that notice how they they mark recidivism in Texas under this program they include reincarceration well only 22% were reincarcerated exactly <laughs> because you guys are trying to avoid incarceration it, it's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy what they do is they have jailbreak they avoid jail at all costs and say look we're succeeding in not reincarcerating people yeah, because you're not reincarcerating people. Not because it's not crime. But if you compare rearrests, it's terrible. They're committing all sorts of crime. Property crimes, drug crimes, violent crimes. As, as um, the federal study, but it's a federal study of state data, noted. And again, I'll have this out in show notes. Isn't that funny? So here's a broader thing. You know, again, in one of these articles where they denounced me, they said, look at Texas has the lowest crime rate since 1967. Look, I don't deny that, you know, 
outside of Maryland, California, there still are a number of states where the trend of lower crime that we've actualized over the last 25 years is still holding. But the operative word is still holding. And the operative word is this is the first step act. So they're harnessing a lot of our tough on crime regime from sentencing to, um, you know, again, criminal justice proceedings, the back end, police tactics that they oppose but are still in place. They want to get rid of. They haven't yet gotten rid of them. And they're like, what do you need tough on crime laws? Crime is down. Like, well, because we have them. But if you guys had your say and you guys had your way, guess what? It would be gone. I don't want to wait to see what happens after the First Step Act. I don't want to see what the next step is. But that's the point. They're like, Daniel, this is nothing. Okay, could we shake on it? And are you going to end your the rest of your agenda? Fine, then I'll agree to pass your stupid bill. But will you agree to pass our bills? If this is really about nonviolent, then you should agree to be tougher when it comes to violent offenders. But no, they're, they're applying their leniencies to them as well. Will you support tougher sentencing for heroin and fentanyl traffickers? For gun felons? Will you join us in deporting criminal aliens? You know, it's a, it's a match made in heaven. You want to reduce the prison population? We want to get rid of criminal aliens. We shouldn't be you know, spending money on other countries' criminals. Let's do it. But no, there's no effort to do that. Because this is all about the Soros agenda and ultimately about more Democrat voters. Now you're going to ask me, well, why did conservatives sign on to it? Well, the same way they sign on to the amnesty agenda. Because they're masochists. And also because there's just a failure of imagination. There's a failure of imagination to break outside of the paradigm that's the false dichotomies that are presented to our people by the political class. And this is why even people like Jim DeMint, you know, they've kind of lost their vision, and they don't have a vision other than what's put on their plate. So they sign on to this. You know, I just saw an interesting social media meme. I don't know how new it is. Maybe it's old. It's new to me. Um, I just saw passed around by some friends this kind of inspirational video of a guy who was on a job interview, and they wanted to see how this guy thinks, and they asked him the following question. You know, moral, philosophical, ethical question. You're driving on a road, stormy day, deserted road, and you see three people waiting at a bus stop in this terrible storm. They, they need shelter. They need a, a ride. And you only have room to take one of them. You only have a spot for one other person. I don't know. Let's say it's a pickup truck. You and a passenger. You don't have room to... to Give a ride to, to the other two. One of them is the woman of your dreams, the perfect woman. I guess, let's say the guy is single. This would be, be great opportunity to, hey, maybe meet his future wife. Another person happens to be a guy who one time saved this driver's life, and he now needs a ride. And the third person is a woman, an elderly woman, who is sick and needs to be taken to the hospital. So what do you do? Well, I mean, you know, you kind of say, well, I don't know, the woman um, who needs to go to the hospital should, I mean, that that's that's pressing. But then, you know, you're kind of sliding the guy that 
saved your life and you know you're missing the opportunity to maybe meet your future wife so anyway without batting an eyelash this uh interviewee said very simple yeah here's what i do i'd hand the key cards the the the, the keys to the car over to this friend of mine who saved my life and say hey take the car and transport this elderly sick woman to the hospital and that way i get to spend hours with the woman of my dreams and you know it's a, just said that the guy doing the interview was just blown away by this guy's ability to think outside the box and that's what i'm trying to do on a policy level we need policy entrepreneurship we need to think beyond the talking points and the false dichotomies that are presented to us by the political class. Well, it's either this or this. No, actually, there's something much bigger going on in all these issues. That if we did the right thing, it would make these choices completely moot. But that's where we are with this jailbreak movement. We, we have a crisis of morality in this country that has gripped even those on the right, not in the country, but in the political class. You know, in addition to criminal justice, I'm seeing just on the border front, Senator James Lankford, who, who claimed to be this big you know, evangelical pastor and a oh, big social conservative. What did I tell you last week that social conservatism on a professional level has boiled down to AIDS in Africa – Islamic refugees, open borders, and soft on crime. They will not fight the homosexual agenda. You know what's interesting? You know, it just came out. Just came out. What was this? Last week. Transgender prisoners. I'm re- reading from a Washington Times article, Alex Sawyer. Transgender prisoners have a right to taxpayer-funded hormone therapy and treatments such as permanent hair removal, a federal court ruled this week, ordering Missouri to foot the bill. Under previous policy, Missouri would agree to pay for prisoners who had begun treatments before being incarcerated but wouldn't pay for inmates who hadn't yet begun. U.S. Magistrate Judge Noel C. Collins of the Eastern District of Missouri said that violated the Eighth Amendment's prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment – by failing to account for transgender prisoner needs. Folks, this is what's happening on the criminal justice level. And it's funny, the same social conservative groups that were so concerned about you know, the religious values of prisoners and being involved in anti-recidivism programs and supporting this jailbreak bill, I didn't see them joining me in denouncing and even highlighting this court ruling and noting the need for judicial reform, stripping the judges of jurisdiction, not just over immigration, but over criminal justice. I'm telling you, there's a growing trend of the courts invalidating all sorts of procedures and laws on the criminal justice system that have been in place forever, and it's really endangering us. The same way you're seeing with sanctuary cities blocking deportation, you're seeing it with domestic criminals as well. This is a time to get tougher. We need to toughen up the laws. We need to kick the courts out, not offer them more discretion. But I hear, you know, Andrew, what's his name? John Malcolm of the Ed Meese Legal Studies Department at Heritage Foundation, while Ed Meese himself, for whom the department is named after, was opposing the, the lead Durbin sentencing bill. He testifies before Congress. This is a this was a few years ago. I'll never forget. This is why we have judges. We don't need mandatory sentencing. We need to give them discretion. Oh, really? This is why Reagan pushed this to begin with. 
He talked about it in some of these speeches, by the way. The, the radical judges. And they're going on a rampage. With that, I want to get to another court opinion that ties into this broad issue. Now, there's this growing trend that I haven't written about as much as I've written about the courts and immigration, but the courts venturing into criminal justice where they're using this transmogrified view of the Fourth Amendment, the Eighth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, obviously 14th, to create all sorts of criminal rights that never existed, impede all sorts of criminal laws and procedures, you know, blow up state laws, blow up uh, capital punishments, the uh, the whole exclusionary rule business where they basically retroactively exclude a lot of what they call tainted evidence and it's really a, a a very problematic growing trend which which is why we we need to get again we need to get tougher on crime tougher laws not defer more to the courts the same reason we shouldn't be doing that more on immigration when things are getting tougher so anyway this was a case um in Virginia where the state supreme court upheld the search of a motorcycle. There's This police officer was basically um, looking for a motorcycle that was involved in all these high-speed chases and everything. And this guy, Officer David Rhodes, was, was a cop in Virginia, and he was standing at the curb of a house where he thought the you know, the criminal was, and he saw something in a driveway that had a tarp over it. And it clearly looked like it was a motorcycle. And he went over to take a look at it. You know, he had probable cause to believe that this guy was operating that motorcycle and that a search of the motorcycle would indeed provide evidence that the motorcycle was stolen. And again, that that stolen motorcycle was involved in all sorts of uh, problems on the road. So, you know, obviously, we have a rule that if a motorcycle is parked anywhere outside, if it's on the street, you know, any cop with probable cause could go and search a car without a warrant. That's that's obvious. If it was on the curb, same thing. Um, what the Supreme Court said today, overturning the state Supreme Court, the federal Supreme Court, and everyone except for Alito signed on to this, is that, no, once it's in the driveway, that's like his home and you need a warrant. Now, as you know, the Fourth Amendment bars unreasonable searches. And what Alito points out is that this is ridiculous. I mean, he says, um, you know, obviously the guy didn't have to do anything. He didn't, you know, invade any private, you know, just literally went 30 feet into the driveway, lifted up the thing, and that's it. It's not like he had to do anything really invasive. Um, but he he looked at this and said an ordinary person of common sense would react to the court's decision the way Mr. Bumble famously responded when told about a legal rule that did not comport with the reality of everyday life. If that is the law, he exclaimed, the law is an ass, an idiot. And then Alito goes on to say the Fourth Amendment is neither an ass nor an idiot. Its hallmark is reasonable reasonableness, and the court's strikingly unreasonable decision is based on a misunderstanding of the Fourth Amendment basics. Fourth Amendment protects the rights of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects. A house for Fourth Amendment purposes is not limited to the structure in which a person lives. By the same token, it also does not include all the real property surrounding a dwelling. Instead, a person's house encompasses the dwelling and a circumscribed area of surrounding land that is given the name curtilage. 
Land outside the curtilage is called an open field, and a search conducted in that area is not considered a search of a house and is therefore not governed by the Fourth Amendment. Now, he goes on to say, obviously, in this case, there's no dispute that the search of the motorcycle was governed by the Fourth Amendment. Um, it's not a question whether it occurred within the curtilage. It's in his driveway. It, it, it did. The question before us is not whether there was a Fourth Amendment search, but whether this search was reasonable. And th- this is the basic thing. The courts are making it impossible to do anything. We talk about this. This is why it's so hard to land a conviction on anything. Now, Thomas – now, by the way, I'm normally I believe Thomas is the best. Alito is the second best. When it comes to criminal issues, in my view, Alito is the best. Um, Thomas the second best. Now, Thomas wrote a separate concurrence because he didn't like where they're likely headed with this is to say they're going to apply the federal exclusionary rule to say that you cannot use the evidence. Not whether you know the search was right. Okay, so have a counter lawsuit or something against him. Um, but I agree with Alito here. You know, this is why it is so hard to land a conviction. And you know, when our founders had the cruel and unusual punishment, Fourth, Fifth Amendments, things like that, it, the people were the victim. The kings, you know, the kings, the monarchs—they just grab people off the, off the street and do what they want with them. You didn't really have ubiquitous crime. Now the people, you know, the criminals are not the victims. They they are the perpetrators. Um, the other people are the victims. They never saw an era of ubiquitous cr- crime. Now, God forbid, I'm never going to tell you we should therefore change the Fourth Amendment. But what I'm saying is we shouldn't expand it. Right? It's very limited in what it is and what it isn't. But what libertarians do to the Fourth Amendment is very similar to what liberals do to the Fourth Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment, and they just add everything in it. Now, sometimes you might want to govern a statu- have a statute governing this, and prohibit things. I don't, you know, not everything that's not in the Fourth Amendment do I think should be done, but nonetheless, don't enshrine it in the Fourth Amendment. But again, this is why it is so tough. And this is why when they talk about over-incarceration, I'm telling you we have an under-incarceration because there's so many people that get off scot-free. This whole thing is a joke. But anyway, this is a big problem with the courts. And it stems from a lack of morality. I mean this was a basic sense of morality that Reagan had that's lost on all my colleagues in this business. And you're seeing it on immigration this week too. What's the news over the Memorial Day weekend you've seen? Oh, this talk about this this uh, oh, uh, Trump housing UACs and cages, you know. And obviously, I'm sure you've heard by now. Um, the picture was taken under the Obama administration. Um, there's nothing new about our incarceration tactics. Um, you know, we have borders. I mean, even Obama that dismantled them, certain things he still did. And oh, you know, he lost touch of 1,500 UACs, or they lost track of. And obviously, again, all this stuff is false. But there's a broader point here. There's a problem with the sense of morality. Even Mike Lee was on Hugh Hewitt's show today, kind of talking about, oh, we need to reach a solution with DACA. Lankford, obviously, talking about that. I'm like, what do you mean DACA's the problem? DACA's the linchpin for fentanyl trafficking, for heroin tra- for trafficking, for empowering Hezbollah, and for MS-13. If you support DACA, you support MS-13 and fentanyl, okay? Where's the sense of morality? And then it's also frustrating that the administration is continuing to send mixed signals. You know, there's a McClatchy article out today 
with Nielsen continuing to give DHS grants to sanctuary cities. Now, there's a debate over whether she feels she's following a court order, but, you know, like I said, you know, you shouldn't follow that. Courts are not appropriators. They don't have the right to appropriate funds. And then, again, with these UACs, like, it bothered me. Even the administration in their defense of this story of 1,500 children being lost, they put out a statement saying, what are you talking about? We, we were actually being nice and following up with them, you know, making calls after 30 days after we resettled them, and they didn't answer. It's not that they're lost. We were just following up with them. But then what's amazing is you see the content of their press release. They note how they're all resettled with parents and family members. If they're parents and family members, they're not UACs. They're not unaccompanied alien children. They're not unaccompanied. They are therefore not eligible for the leniency of the refugee status with UACs. Period. Done. And yet we're continuing this. Trump's executive order from January 25th, 2017, first week, first week of his administration, ordered DHS to properly interpret the UAC statute, and yet we're not doing it. So anyway, I'm going to follow the immigration story a lot this week. Look look at our content at Conservative Review. Um, but this, this is the issue. It, we have a safety and security problem, and it stems from a moral crisis with crime and immigration where even some of my colleagues have completely lost their values on this issue. It's not going to deter me. We're going to keep uh, swimming upstream here. And in order to do that, I need you guys to support our sponsors. So, you know, in addition to um, criminals coming in your home, burglars, especially if you live where I do, you got parasites, and not just liberals in your home, um, regulating all your activity. But you got flies, you got mosquitoes. It is so hard to get rid of them. It's so hard to detect them. But believe me, they're there. They bite you at night. They get in your food. Dynatrap. That is the solution. Go to www.dynatrap.com, D-Y-N-A-T-R-A-P.com, promo code Daniel. Get your Dynatrap fly light. It is an amazing, amazing product. I have it indoors. Um, I use it as a – I kill two birds with one stone. The kids love nightlights, so it has a nice nightlight, and that's what attracts the bugs. Bugs stick onto the sticky back there. doesn't zap them, so it doesn't wake up your kids at night. And, uh, you know, it, it also has a nice uh, feature where it has a USB and an outlet attached to it so it doesn't block your outlet. And it really works. Promo code Daniel, get 15% off. Let me know how it works, by the way, because it's certainly working for me. Check out their outdoor products as well. You know, if you spend a lot of time outside, um, as the weather gets turns more humid, I'm telling you, it's really worth it. Dynatrap is the safe solution to bug control in your home. And we need crime control. We need crime control. I'm telling you, I am going to dog this issue like there's no tomorrow because where there's no truth on this issue, that's where I'm going to fly like a fly on you-know-what <laughs> uh, because that, that that's the thing. That's what I'm here. That's what I'm here for. There's other issues that you know, you're know you going to get a lot of clarity from a lot of other hosts like on the Mueller probe. Um, there's a lot to say on that, but you know, other people are doing a good job. But there are fundamental issues that people are not – addressing and for which they're not speaking the truth, that's why you need to make the conservative conscience your one-stop shop, conservative review, CRTV. This is the place to be. Thank you all for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of the conservative conscience. 